They teach you in seminary preaching classes to consider your audience. Know who it is you are preaching to. So I thought, why not? I'll give that a try. So by show of hands, who here this morning has lied about the identity of your spouse to the leader of a foreign nation? Go ahead. Somehow I thought there would be more of you. Well, then what good is our passage today? Perhaps we should try another angle. This time, no show of hands. I don't want to embarrass anyone. But how many of you have fallen to a particular temptation, sinned against God, experienced his conviction, perhaps his chastisement, hopefully even his forgiveness, only to return to that sin again? and again, and again. I have a hunch that's quite a few more of you. (laughs) In fact, all of you, all of us. Now we have a starting point for this passage. (laughs) It's a passage that some biblical scholars don't know what to do with. Um, the liberal scholars who are always looking for problems, they're always trying to poke holes in things, they say, well, this is just a duplication of what we've already seen. This is just the author, and if it's liberal scholars, then it's probably not Moses who's the author. This is just the author repeating himself. It's the same exact story. He's just changed a few minor details. Now, Usually, I just roll my eyes at the liberal scholars. But here I I laughed out loud. They said, we know it's a duplicate because it's just not reasonable to think that the main character would do the exact same thing twice. And I laughed, and I thought, how poorly these scholars understand even their own human nature and tendencies. Yes, the main character does, in fact, do the exact same thing twice. In fact, we find out it was premeditated that he would do it. He planned on doing it. And spoiler alert, his progeny after him will do it too. Now, it might technically be the same offense twice, but there are quite a few differences here and quite a few things for us to consider this second time around. Things concerning the the real cause behind this sin, how God's sovereignty factors in, the impact of our sins on others, the limits of God's grace on our repeat offenses. Spoiler alert, there are none. Lots of good stuff. Stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. 
From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abram said, I I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray. God, indeed, none of us here have lied about the identity of our spouse to a foreign king. But indeed, every one of us is a repeat offender in your eyes this morning. And so would you speak to us from your word, powerfully, tell us of your grace, Show us that it's greater than we could dare to imagine. Show us your sovereign hand at work even in our failures. Teach us, Lord. Change us, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Please be seated. Verse 1. 
From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev, lived between Kadesh and Shur, and sojourned in Gerar. We're not told why that Abraham was on the move, but he was on the move. Some have speculated that it was related to Sodom's destruction. Either that where he was there around the Oaks at Mamre, some 20 years in that general area wandering around, that that area was no longer an appealing place to be. Perhaps it reeked of sulfur. Or it could have been that the locals who were there no longer wanted Abraham around. Your God did this? You should move along. Whatever the reason, Abraham is indeed on the road again. And that factors in in a couple of ways. Abraham is a man without a country. He, he was called from the only country that he knew. And unlike his nephew Lot, he has not settled down anywhere. He has not put down roots. He hasn't gained for himself standing in a community. He doesn't sit at the gate anywhere like Lot did. He doesn't have many rights or privileges as an immigrant, as a sojourner, an alien. It's a precarious situation, actually. It's dangerous. It would be easy for him to be taken advantage of, and there would be no one to stand up for him. It must have been hard to feel safe and secure. So upon arrival in Gerar, Abraham and Sarah resort to a previous tactic. Oh, this is my sister. Not my wife. She's my sister. And deja vu all over again, she's immediately snatched up to be a part of the king's harem. So here we go again, scratching our heads. What do we make of this? What are we supposed to learn from it? What should we learn from Abraham's not learning from his mistakes? Well, the first thing we have to do is dig deeper. We've got to look at the root cause of this. This is a great, great, great example where the sin on the surface is not the real problem. What's the sin on the surface? Lying. Abraham and Sarah conspire to tell a lie. They break the ninth commandment. They are not telling the truth. Uh, Even if they claim they're skirting by on a technicality, well, she is my half-sister. The point is very clear. They intended to deceive They intended to hide the fact that they were married to each other. They're lying. And yet, lying isn't the real issue that needs to be dealt with. That's very often the case in our own lives. The sin on the surface... It's more like the lights 
on the dashboard of our car. That, that nondescript engine light that pops up and you say, oh no. You don't know what's wrong, but you know that something is going on. Might not know exactly what it is right off the bat, but something is going on. The sin on the surface is very often a warning light indicating something deeper is going on. Now, I find it no small coincidence that this repeat offense of Abraham's comes on the heels of what we saw last week. Lot trying desperately to numb his pain, getting so hammered two nights in a row that he has no recollection of participating in this evil plan of his daughters. The sins on the surface last week Drunkenness, sexual immorality, namely incest. As problematic as those things are, if you focus your efforts on dealing with those surface sins, you will completely miss the point. On a good day, you might could get those surface sins corralled and managed a little bit better to be a little bit less of a problem. But if you don't deal with the root cause, new surface sins will spring up again and again and again. I frequently torture my children, getting them to help me in the yard with all of this yard work, so much around our house. So many beds to weed and try to get under control. So many invasive, thorny sticker vines that if we just snap them off at the surface or mow them down with a weed eater, guess what? We get to do the same exact thing three weeks from now. No, to have any real impact, we've got to do the harder work of digging deeper down and finding that long tuber thing from which all of those vines come from. Dig that up, and then there will be a little bit of lasting impact. Dig that up, and there will be a little bit fewer of those vines on the surface. The root issue last week was not drunkenness and incest. It was idolatry and an orphan mentality. And would you believe, would it shock you at all to find out that that's what we're dealing with here this week as well? Abraham and Sarah's surface sin of lying 
is ultimately a warning light of their idolatry. It is a check engine light pointing to their orphan mentality. They've placed a higher value on safety and security than they have on obedience. See, what they will do, they will take obedience and they will sacrifice it on the altar of safety. Now, if you didn't hear last week's message, then when I say orphan mentality, you may be sitting there saying, huh, what is he talking about? You may be sitting there thinking that anyway, but an orphan mentality is when you feel like you're all alone. You're all you've got. You don't have anyone who will look out for you, provide for you, take care of you. Therefore, you have to take matters into your own hands. Here we are, Abraham and Sarah say, strangers in this land. They're probably going to take advantage of us. Abraham's thinking, I might even be killed. That's not as far-fetched as it might sound to you. It's, It's a real problem that he's facing. They didn't have anyone who would protect them from this. So no, friends, lying isn't their biggest problem. They're idolizing security and safety. They're feeling orphaned and alone, doubting that God will protect and care for them. Those are the root sins. Those are the real cause that, if unaddressed, will just pop up in a thousand other different ways. Now, we, of course, want to use this passage like we used last week's passage, like a mirror. We want to see how we are just like Abraham and Sarah. Not not with the problem of lying, but with the root sins of idolatry and an orphan mentality. And and we're going to circle back around to that at the very end. Let's look at the rest of what happens and work through this. They lie. Abimelech takes Sarah. And just like the episode back in chapter 12, the one in Egypt, this could have gone really, really bad. This supposed solution of theirs is... Not a great idea, especially now. Because what's different now? Sarah is very likely pregnant with Isaac. If ever Abraham should have thought about protecting Sarah, it would be now. But how very gracious of God, though much doubted, And certainly offended. How offended he must be for them to say, we don't have anybody. Nobody will ever look out for us. Though much doubted and certainly offended, he intervenes. Again, miraculously, sovereignly. 
to protect his promise and to protect these lying, doubting children of his. He shows up in Abimelech's dream and he says, you're a dead man. That'll get your attention. And apparently quite a bit of time has transpired in these first three verses. It's just bang, bang, bang. It just happens real quick in these first three verses. But if, as we see at the end of the passage, they are going to be able to realize that all the women are barren, some time has to elapse, perhaps even several months. And so God has already been at work behind the scenes before he shows up in Abimelech's dream. Because apparently he's afflicted Abimelech with some kind of disease or sickness. I've got some ideas about what it might be, but that's just speculation. That has prevented him from knowing Sarah in the biblical sense of the word. As a member of his harem. This was God's active protection of Sarah. Despite her lack of faith. So... Pause for just a moment. Consider how gracious God continues to be that even in the midst of her sin, even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of our repeat offenses, when reason would tell us, well, you've gone and done it now. There's no hope for you. And that would be the case if we had a God who was like us. But we don't have a God like us. We have a God whose ways and thoughts are higher than ours. We have a God who is much more ready to be gracious to us again than we are ready to receive it. I thought about that yesterday in our reading. So we were in 2 Timothy 2 yesterday, and it's got that little saying that Paul quotes from. I don't know where it's from. But it's all of these things that are kind of parallel, right? If we endure, we'll reign. If we deny, he'll deny. They're all parallel until the end. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. It's setting us up for that, wait a minute, that's kind of jarring. That's not what I was expecting. But that's who he is. And he can't deny himself, Paul says. He's a God of all grace. Even for repeat offenders. And so verse 6 after God says to Abimelech, you're a dead man, and he says, wait, 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 I, did, I didn't do anything yet. I wanted to, but I couldn't. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know. It was I who kept you from sinning, God says. I did not let you touch her. Grace, grace grace, to not give Abraham and Sarah what they deserve, but to continue to pour out grace and blessing on them. I want to divide our remaining time between two errors on Abram's part. The first is how badly he misreads this situation with Abimelech. He judges him wrongly. Uh, One of the biggest differences between these two episodes, between chapter 12 and chapter 20, is the difference between Pharaoh and Abimelech. 
It's a pretty stark difference. But the problem is Abraham assumes there's not going to be any difference at all. If you've seen one pagan, you've seen them all. (laughs) They all must be as bad as they possibly could be. Abraham assumes the worst. Verse 11, the rationale for his lying is that nobody here fears God. I know it. I know they don't. Nobody here fears God. That's quite an ironic statement, actually, for Abraham to be making here. But as it turns out, Abimelech actually does demonstrate a decently healthy fear of God. So do his people. He tells them that God showed up in his dream and it says they're all afraid. That's a fear of God. He, God tells Abimelech, give Sarah back. Dude gets up early the next morning to get busy doing this. Uh, verse 9, he seems genuinely eager to find out what he's done wrong to Abraham. Abraham, how have I wronged you? He's, he's trying to work this out. And Abimelech certainly proves how different he is from Pharaoh. He doesn't shift the blame solely to Abraham like Pharaoh does. He is super generous with Abraham. A thousand shekels of silver. That is an obscene amount of wealth. Like a year's wages for 160 people or something crazy like that. Pharaoh said, take your wife and get out. Abimelech said, hey, you see all the land here. Where would you like to dwell? Stay. Dwell. He actually blesses Abraham, which is really strange because he's a foreigner. He's not obligated in any way to bless this man, but he blesses him. And that bodes well for Abimelech, doesn't it? Because God has already said, I'm going to bless those who bless you. Perhaps God will even bless Abimelech and his people with further knowledge of himself, calling them, drawing them to be his people. We don't know. That's certainly a possibility. It would be the exception and not the rule, but it does happen. God does draw people to himself and change them, and we don't know who it's going to be. And so this begs a question, a really important question, a question that grows in importance with each passing day. What is our posture to the lost around us? Do we automatically assume the worst about them? No fear of God here. Certainly, sometimes that will turn out to be the case. But do we shoot first and then ask questions later? Or do we engage? Do we give the benefit of the doubt? Maybe God's already been at work here. 
maybe the Spirit's already been wooing and drawing, instilling some fear of God in the heart of this person. Maybe this person is ripe for harvest if we don't write them off too soon. Do we consider how our actions affect the lost around us? When Abraham lied, he certainly considered how that would affect him. He was acting to protect himself. He gave zero consideration to the impact around him. A a devastating impact, verse 7, if you don't give Sarah back, you and your people will surely die. Abraham's totally forgotten his call. Remember the call of Abraham? In you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Sure doesn't seem like the path of blessing to me when you're endangering people's lives through your lies. Friends, in a world that is growing increasingly hostile to Christians, to the church. We need to fight against this tendency to lump all the lost together, to assume the worst about them. No fear of God here. We have no idea. We have no idea who the Lord is calling. He's got quite a history, in fact, of calling lost causes and hopeless cases. He does that so that his glory will be even more on display. The other error error I want you to look at that Abraham makes is in how he responds to God's sovereignty, specifically when God's sovereignty brings difficulty his way. When Abimelech is asking Abraham, what did I do? Why would you do this to me? Abe essentially says, it's nothing you did. It's not your fault, it's God's fault. It's very much this Adam-like blame-shifting that we saw in the garden. Adam, what'd you do? Oh, this woman who you gave me, she made me do it. I lied because of what God did. This is his fault. He's the one who made me wander the earth, verse 13. So kudos to Abraham, at least, for recognizing the sovereignty of God in this. Because God did cause him to wonder. Plucked him up out of Ur of the Chaldees while he was worshiping the moon. Called him to himself. And yes, wondering, as a foreigner, without any proper home, that's a tough calling. There's no two ways about that. There's a lot of difficulty and adversity there, but... Abraham's response is to come up with a strategy. A way of dealing with this difficulty, a way really of trying to get around this difficulty. Of viewing himself as an orphan in this difficulty. How am I going to fix this? And for Abraham, his strategy was serial disobedience. 
came up with a plan. He said, this would be my normal MO for dealing with difficulty of being a sojourner. And so when Abimelech says, what did I do? Abraham saying, oh, don't take it personally. I do this all the time. It's my default position. I've planned to do this. Premeditated sin is a means of coping with difficulty. Yes, God did cause him to wonder. God did sovereignly lead him down a difficult path. That was for a purpose. That Abraham might learn to trust him. That Abraham might learn that God is, in fact, trustworthy. And Abraham is trying everything within his power to short-circuit these important lessons. Y'all, these are small tests for Abraham ahead of the big, big test that's coming. He needs to learn to trust. He needs to learn that God can be trusted. He needs to learn, I don't have to resort to disobedience to feel safe or secure, or whatever the idol is that you want to fill in the blank there. In control, loved, popular, whatever. I don't have to take matters into my own hands. I'm not an orphan. The the thing that makes this second episode sting so much more than the first. Well, that that first one, that, that was early on in their relationship, God and Abraham. Abram at the time. Not a whole lot of water under the bridge yet. Perhaps in Abram's eyes, God was a bit untested. But y'all, what has happened since then? Rescued him out of Egypt, out of a mess of their own making. Gave them these crazy victories in chapter 14 over this coalition of kings shows up, appears to Abraham in these miraculous and supernatural and intimate encounters, listens to all of Abraham's prayers about Sodom, rescues his nephew Lot. Y'all, there's been ample reason for Abraham to now realize he's not an orphan. That he does have a God who cares, who protects and provides... Abraham should have realized by now that he matters to God. That he, in fact, is is precious to him. He must be. What else would explain all of this? See, that would be the thing that changes his life. That would be the thing that would keep him from lying to Abimelech. See, obedience then would be more beautiful to Abraham than safety or security. Obedience would then be precious to Abraham when he realizes how precious he is to God. So it is with us. Obedience will be precious to us when we realize how precious we are to him. And the gospel is proof positive of that fact of how precious you are to God. 
so precious, in fact, that he would give his only son. The son who had the opportunity to call the whole thing off in the garden the night before. But he didn't act in self-protection. He gave himself. He saw that great difficulty sovereignly placed before him, and he didn't formulate a strategy to get around it, to avoid the pain. But because of his great love with which he has loved those that the Father has given to him, to be his forever, he embraced what was before him. Friends, knowing that kind of love knowing that we matter to him that way, knowing that we are precious to him. That's what's going to dig up all the root sins and root causes out of your heart. That's the thing that's going to bring deep, lasting transformation. Father, would you convince our stubborn slow to believe hearts that we are precious to you. We're not precious in and of ourselves, but we're precious to you. And God, would you change us through that realization? Would you allow us then to learn from the difficulties that that you can be trusted. You'll never orphan us. You'll never leave us or forsake us. If you've taken care of our deepest, greatest need, everything else is chump change. God, it's got a a, a big impact, not just in our lives, but on the lives of those around us too. So would you do the deep work in us, Lord, for your glory, for the good of those around us, and for our joy in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.